Democracy means to Atomic bomb. Crime from threatening freedom. We fail, and freedom fails. Hello and welcome to Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast on how a world was, is and will be ordered. Today I'm joined here in uh, studio by our senior fellow Jamie Fly. Glad to be here. And then in Berlin, my co-host Rachel Tausenfreund is back with us. Hi. And my name is Peter Sparding and I'm also a fellow at the German Marshall Fund. What we thought we'd do today is, since we've talked about Germany in the first episode, we've talked about China, we talked about Russian interference. We have, at these different uh, discussions, always talked a bit about can other actors take over a leading role in the international order, implying that there is a uh, void to be filled. So we thought, let's look at what has left this void, supposedly. So today we're talking about the United States. Given that it's been a little bit more than one year since President Trump came into office, we thought it's a, a good time to look back. Uh, a year ago, we had a lot of uh, predictions about what would happen and what potential threats to the international order might emanate from the U.S. turning away from it. So maybe we'll start by asking Jamie to give us his assessment on where U.S. foreign policy currently stands. Is it, is it as bad as people were afraid of last year? Well, thanks, Peter. So I come at this from an interesting perspective. I'm a, I'm a lifelong Republican who worked for one of the candidates who ran against Donald Trump. So obviously, having lived through the Republican uh, presidential primary, uh, I was working for someone who had a lot of policy concerns about Donald Trump's views and uh, the implications that a Trump presidency would have for America's role in the world. However, looking at the last year, I guess, you know, we started off this presidency with an inaugural speech about American carnage with a very minimal view of what America's responsibilities were in the world. Yet, looking at the, the actual record of the administration over the last year, I'd argue it's actually relatively conventional in terms of the outputs uh, of this administration's foreign policy. And my main concern going into the second year of this administration is that in many ways, it's actually too conventional. Uh, if you set aside the rhetoric and you set aside the uh, tweets, which are often erratic and contradictory, not just on foreign policy, but also domestic policy, the underlying policies that we've now seen laid out in the national security strategy, the national defense strategy more recently, um, are, are really a, con a continuation, I think, of a lot of Obama administration policy, uh, especially when you start looking at the different regions where the U.S. is a key player. Uh, more often than not, uh, these are slight variations of policies that were put in place by the prior administration. Uh, and so I actually think the real danger, getting back to where you started with whether there's a void to be filled, is that, yes, there is, there's been a trend in American politics and American views about foreign policy over the last decade in particular that we should do less in the world. The American people are less willing to do certain things and pay for certain things. Um, not as willing to get involved militarily. And then on that count, I actually think the Trump administration is making many of the same decisions uh, that the Obama administration did. And so the net result of that will be a U.S. that's taking a bit of a step back. I don't think it's a, a complete void that will be left behind, especially if you look at documents like the National Defense Strategy. 
uh, where we make very assertive statements about where we are going to get involved and what we are going to do in support of allies. But I do think there is uh, a, a bit of a stepping back, and it's going to create a conundrum for many of our allies about how they're going to respond. Rachel, can I just uh, actually get, get you in here? I, I'm guessing this will look different from Berlin or is seen differently outside the U.S., so maybe you can tell us how other views from there. Um, yeah, I'm not sure that there's sort of one clear view. There's, there's a similarity in that um, allies and maybe Germany— Germany was sort of in the middle ground here in Europe. They were, you know, terrified when Trump was elected and thought, you know, nuclear war and the end of NATO were imminent and, you know, to be expected in three months or something. So there is a sense that people, that this isn't going to happen that quickly. Maybe it's not even going to happen at all. So people have relaxed a little bit in, and share a bit of what, you know, of what Jamie was saying in terms of it's, 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 not as, um, it's not as dramatic a departure as we thought it might be. That said, and especially in Germany, um, you know, a lot of the, the kind of void of American power in the world that Jamie mentioned, where you can see perhaps, arguably, a continuation between Obama and Trump is specifically kind of military engagement. Right. But the other part of the global order and the world order that or the system of alliances um, that Germans are concer concerned about are things like global rules, rulemaking, sort of sentiments and values and America's role in upholding those kinds of things. And there I would say um, we have seen a huge departure. Now, maybe some of that departure, if you think climate is um, is more traditional Republican than especially Trumpian. But this is where um, Germans would definitely disagree and, see, and say this new America doesn't seem to care that much about alliances, at least the spirit of alliances. It doesn't need, seem to care about rulemaking, global rulemaking, about the idea of cooperation and all of these things that are slightly more fundamental in the German view to world order than you know, how many soldiers we have there or there or um, our willingness to send, you know, military muscle. I, I want to uh, push you a little bit, Jamie, on, on this as well. So one, you mentioned the, the new national security strategy and national defense strategy. And, and it's certainly true that if you read those documents, they don't sound that different from previous um, um, documents, a bit longer, I, I think. But, but overall, uh, nothing completely new. The, I think a lot of this rests on, you said, setting aside the tweets or more broadly maybe setting aside the, the persona of the, the president and how he, in the campaign, and then later um, appeared to talk about the international order and U.S. foreign policy. So the, the question is, are you saying that that's mostly, you know, it's, it's rhetoric and doesn't translate into or hasn't translated into that much. And we should focus on, on those underlying um, movements and, and what actually U.S. foreign policy does. Or how do you square that, that there's such a, a seemingly discrepancy between these, these two things? You know, I think it's, it's hard to psychoanalyze Donald Trump. Uh, <laughs> many are trying. Yes. I'm not sure anyone really has the ultimate insights into how his mind works and why he does the things that he does. Um, you know, clearly the rhetoric uh, has had an impact of, you know, scaring allies, frustrating allies. Um, it's also worked, you can argue, well, I think in some cases with potential foes. 
uh, because uh, you know countries that run afoul of what the U.S. wants to do, I think, have to be concerned when they see a presidential tweet, you know, hinting at a particular policy. Um, you know, behind the scenes, though, at least what I've heard, uh, you know, it's not the case with with all foreign leaders. In many cases, President Trump has actually formed closer relationships with U.S. allies and his counterparts than President Obama did. President Obama was. You know, yes, he was beloved by the masses, but the reality is most European leaders did not have very close personal relationships with him. If you remember at the beginning of his administration, the people he was close to were people like Erdogan, Medvedev, you know, uh, Chinese leaders. And these. this was not a president, at least especially in his first term, who spent a lot of time palling around with European partners. And... Uh, you know, related to that as well, people also forget how dismissive President Obama often was of allies. You know, he just didn't do it through Twitter. He didn't do it as openly. But if you remember the recall the Jeffrey Goldberg uh, articles about the Obama administration, I mean, he very directly called U.S. allies free riders. Uh, and so, again, there's a lot of similarities in, t- in terms of some of that, you know, mood in the American debate about alliances. Um, but I don't think we should read too much into particular tweets and argue that it's the end of the alliance just because Donald Trump has said something nasty or he criticized uh, maybe Theresa May or someone in the UK government on a particular issue. Um, My sense is U.S. partners, for the most part, have figured out how to adapt to this new dynamic and to a very unpredictable U.S. president. And I don't think we're going to see the end of certain relationships just because Donald Trump is is now uh, in the White House. Sure, I would agree with that. I mean, not least because they're not stupid. And uh, even if they don't love Trump or love the U.S., mostly they don't have a better option. Um, in fact, our colleagues from Paris just recently were writing about agreeing basically with what you're saying, Jamie, at least in the French case, right? The Macron-Trump relationship is so far um, pretty strong and viewed pretty positively by at least policymakers, if not necessarily the population. And they're quite happy that this Obama-Merkel relationship hasn't been replaced by a similarly strong Merkel-Trump relationship, right? So I would uh, I would agree with that. I would even agree with when you said sometimes perhaps Trump's strong rhetoric has been helpful with potential adversaries. I mean, you could even argue in the NATO case, if the countries really do up their spending um, in real terms, then you could also say the insecurity of Trump and his harsher rhetoric and the sense that he really means it will end up being also good for that particular alliance. Though again, you know, maybe in the short term. And um, I'm not sure about the long term. Yeah, I would, I, I, this is a, the pretty much sums up the discussion um, in the transatlantic sphere on, on this. Um, I think one thing that we are currently uh, maybe not grappling with yet is the long-term consequence of this. I, I've heard this argument that, well, look, maybe now the Europeans will actually do what many U.S. administrations, as Jamie pointed out, have have asked them to do, which is take care more of their own defense and, and so on. But I would ask, at what cost? Because at the same time, yes, this is maybe leading to that outcome, but not in the way that uh, one might hope. This is more through a co- coercive uh uh, approach then the U.S. still has that power, of course. When the U.S. Uh, you know says it's no longer sure whether it might defend uh, Europe, of course that matters. But at the same time, if we if we you know we've seen one year now, if we you know extrapolate this for four years, um, what comes after? Is, is there a, 
is the push away for, for the allies too much? Um, so we might see a specific result. I, I think that's actually a, a good point to be made. But, but is the cost too high in that the U.S. is giving up even on its nominal leadership in the sense that you know, I, I, I know that um, sometimes that people criticize this in Europe as hypocritical, of course, when the U.S. Uh, talks about its international leadership and so on. But it has always been the self-understanding of the U.S. to be an exceptional nation and, and leading this the system. So even if only in rhetoric and so on, abandoning this might have a, a long-term cost. I don't know if you have anything on that. Yeah, I mean, my main concern actually about the Trump presidency is not really about his foreign policy at this point. I mean, I'm like right. I said, I've not, I've actually been pleasantly surprised uh, about uh, it not being anywhere near as bad as many had predicted. Um, that, now, I will say that could always change. Right. The cast of individuals. We, sh- we should timestamp this. Yes, episode, the cast yes. of individuals surrounding the president will probably not be the same one even three months from now. Uh, we could get a, a different set of players who uh, are not as responsible, I would argue, as people like Secretary Mattis or others. So just to caveat that, my real concern actually, it relates to your point about the future of American leadership, is I do think this is a continuation of a trend that, w- that started before Donald Trump. There's been a, an issue post-Iraq and Afghanistan in American society. Americans have grown increasingly skeptical of international engagement uh, on multiple levels. And I think if you talk, you have honest conversations, even with many people who serve in the Obama administration, they admit that that administration did not do as much as it could to actually encourage Americans to come out of this post-Iraq and Afghanistan funk, if you want to call it that. President Obama had amazing rhetorical skills, but instead of applying that to actually inspiring Americans to lead in the world. He talked about things like nation building at home. And in many ways, if you look at the way he talked about problems like Syria, he kind of played into that narrative that we can't do certain things. We just got to let certain bad things fester and it's outside our domain. Um, That's the same problem you have with this administration. This is not a president who is going to inspire Americans to lead uh, internationally. He actually likes to talk about many of the same themes. Uh, He uses variations of nation building at home in his speeches as well. And that's concerning to me because I think when you add up, you know, the, the timeline of multiple presidents, at least now we'll have 12 years of, of two presidents who have not inspired Americans to do great things internationally. That has an impact even generationally going forward in terms of younger Americans and how they view America's role in the world. So that's a major concern. And then the other thing I will be very blunt about, the way Trump has handled domestic politics, I think, uh, is incredibly concerning. Uh, the divisions he is uh, you know, allowing to be created and deepened in American society on not just political issues, on cultural issues, on social issues. Uh, and that damage, I think, that is being done to uh, you know, our democratic debates, that has national security implications as well. It's distracting, and it makes Americans focus on things much closer to the home, so they think they have to worry less about problems overseas. But then, as we've seen with the foreign interference challenge that uh, we experienced uh, in 2016, very notably, it creates openings and vulnerabilities that can be exploited by foreign adversaries. And uh, as long as Americans are spending their time fighting over conspiracy theories, often uh, debating fringe views, uh, we're not 
even having constructive conversations about what our appropriate role is in the world and whether we're willing to commit the resources uh, to do certain things. And I think that is going to have uh, a long-lasting, uh, long-lasting implications for you know, the whole question of what the future is of American leadership uh, around the globe. Jamie, I would, I would agree with that. I would definitely agree with that. And I would even take it a step further. Um, you know, if, if we say um, it's true that neither Obama nor Trump are, you know, as you said, spent their time and energy trying to inspire Americans to do more abroad to do more in the world. And then um, and then what you have in addition to that in the in the Trump uh, presidency and administration is um, we're not even we're sort of anti-inspiring Americans to even believe in their government to the extent that then that government could do great things abroad, right? So we had um, our last discussion was about, you know, undermining democracy. But um, the fact of the matter is the sort of, you know, in, in, in the executive branch with, you know, not insignificant support in the, in Congress, um, we're, we're doing a pretty good job of undermining our own democracy right now, um, which, as you say, is not only a distraction, right? So it gets people, um, you know, arguing about things they shouldn't be arguing about, um, disagreeing more than they perhaps actually would disagree, right? If someone weren't kind of sowing division. Um, so there's the distraction factor, but there's also then the just, you know, weakening, further weakening of the state to function, right? If we don't trust the rule of law in our own country, then how are we supposed to stand up for the rule of law abroad? If we're weakening, you know, the executive branch and the Congress, then we're definitely not going to inspire our own people for engagement, but we're also losing the soft power because that was part of the, you know, that was also part of America's role in establishing this order was being an attractive force, being a kind of example. Um, you know, of course, we made lots of mistakes, but um, there was this element of example. And um, it seems to me that that's, that's the thing that's potentially most at risk in the next three years. Uh, let's not even think further than that. Yeah, I, so just to, to jump in uh, and, and make two points. One is because you mentioned uh, President Obama and listeners might uh, wonder about this. So to clarify, we will also bring on uh, a GMF fellows who may have worked for President Obama. This didn't work out this time for scheduling. I'm happy to uh, to take on that role a little bit. Um, but I just wanted to point that out um, so that we're, we're not uh, seeming too one-sided here. The other point, I think uh, I, I'm um, completely agreeing with Jamie and I've, I've heard way uh, too little uh, on this from U.S. foreign policy folks is that um, actually foreigners or the international audience at least is is quite interested in what's going on domestically in the U.S. Um, I would argue, at least in my home country of Germany, a little too much. It's, uh, uh, you know, we have a bit of a manic relationship with this, but I get push alerts from German news outlets when, you know, Steve Bannon gets uh, fired and so on. So it's, I, I think sometimes that's not fully understood in Washington, which, is actually, you know, speaks highly for Washington that they're not thinking, every, you know, every little thing that, that happens in Washington matters to others. But that, I think, is actually one of the main points that people are currently observing and are shocked about um, that we, we see some of these moves, especially questioning the rule of law and, and 
um, checks and balances and and um, and so on. That does have an effect. Then, when a future U.S. president so will go back out into the world and and say certain things. I can already predict this will snap back. This is what people are going to come back with. They're going to say, yeah, but you guys had Trump, so what are you going to tell us? So there's, this is already uh, baked in. So, uh, but, but maybe to have a, a, another question in, in this realm. So I think um, there's some agreement uh, that there has been a trend in the in U.S. population and therefore also in previous presidents on that, um, you know, you talked about nation building at home, that many people... May not may no longer be willing to um, to support this kind of or the the kind of foreign policy we have seen in previous decades. Um, some of that, some people have argued, is more um, has more to do with economic realities, you know, and globalization. And we haven't seen wage increases in the U.S., so people are wondering, wait, if we're not uh, benefiting as much from the system, why are we doing so much um, for the world? But there is definitely a general trend of this that that we can see already under Obama. So my question is, so is there only are there only two options? Because sometimes I feel like people are talking about, well, you know, we have to um, inspire, as we as you said, inspire Americans again to do more um, and so on to to keep up the system that the U.S. has created. Or is there an option of somewhat of a strategic uh, pullback from the U.S., maybe more strategic than the current administration might? Undertake, but is there a thing such as um, maybe the U.S. is stepping back a little bit in order to preserve the support, domestic support for the system it created? Is that even possible, or would then the system not hold? Well, that's what the that's what this administration is arguing that they are doing. So uh, I think it's there's elements of it in the national security strategy, but the one that the document that really gets into the resourcing issue is the national defense strategy, and. You know, you have to read between the lines a little bit, but in some areas, they're much more explicit about the fact that, especially from a military perspective, given that we still have sequestration, we've had these defense cuts, the military is unable to continue to be able to do everything in every key region of the globe. And so they actually have a tiered system in the national defense strategy that prioritizes the China challenge uh, and, and the Asia Pacific more broadly. Russia is, and Russia and Europe are second. Uh, and the Middle East is third, which is interesting. Uh, if you obviously look at the at the last uh, fifteen years of American policy, now they say we're not withdrawing from the Middle East. We're not as I mean, their argument is we're not as naive as those Obama folks who thought that we could actually get out of the Middle East. And of course, we still have interest in the Middle East. But if you look at the way that both the national security strategy and the national defense strategy, what they say we will do in the Middle East, it's very limited in terms of what this administration thinks we can achieve in that region. And a lot of it is dependent on partnerships with local allies and, and partners. Um, you know, Europe obviously has a, a role to play in that. But honestly, I think in this administration's thinking in the Middle East, it's the, the Saudis, the Israelis, the other Gulf partners uh, who they think through, uh, com, you know, combined forces, through joint operations, through support as we did in the counter-ISIS campaign, through proxy forces, we will deal with a lot of the Middle East problems that way and build a favorable balance of power, the terms that they use to deter a regional uh, you know, rival like Iran. So they, I think, believe that they are putting forward a much more measured American policy that might be over time more sustainable politically. 
Um, there's in the broader array of conservative national security thinkers, there are a lot of people advocating this. Walter Russell Mead uh, at the Hudson Institute has written a lot, and you know, both before Trump and during the Trump presidency, about the Jacksonian tradition. And I think he basically believes that Donald Trump is Jacksonian. And I think Re- uh, Mead's longer-term argument has always been that Americans, writ large, tend to be Jacksonian. And there's always been a debate about that amongst uh, especially conservative foreign policy thinkers, um, whereas you have others more like Bob Kagan uh, who are more supportive of the notion that America has always stood for certain values and tried to achieve great things in the world, even going back to the founding. Uh, and so you have that tension. I tend to lean more towards uh, the idealists uh, on this uh, in the Republican Party. Um, but And that's why I emphasize this need for presidential leadership and inspiration. Because, yes, I think we always have had tra- Jacksonian trends uh, in our policy. But at the end of the day, Americans have always been has al- have always shown that they can, although they're reluctant, they can be inspired to do amazing things. If you think about our intervention in World War I, World War II, these are not conflicts that the American people were demanding in, in mass that we get involved in. And we obviously bore a great cost, uh, both financial and in terms of uh, American lives, to do these huge things. Um, and the, the historical record has shown that part of that is leadership. And that's what we've been lacking. So I actually think at the end of the day, uh, you could have a pendulum swing back uh, in that other direction. Uh, the, the question is, will American politics be such that no politician on either the left or the right feels that it's in their interest uh, to even try to inspire the American people uh, to lead internationally, uh, especially given you know that in many cases, there's a major pushback now politically on some of these issues, whether it's foreign aid, military spending, just the question of whether we should be building bridges and uh, you know rehabilitating airports at home rather than uh, providing assistance to allies overseas. Jamie, that's a direct link to what I wanted uh, what I wanted to ask you about since you know I think we should take advantage of having a real um, expert on um, on Congress and the Senate with us because we've been talking about presidential leadership and then we've been sort of contrasting you know where Trump is on these things versus what's going on with the foreign policy establishment um, that you can see in the different strategy papers. But what about what about Congress? What about the Senate? Um, you know, you hinted it at the end. Has that changed? So we're not getting political leadership that we would need from the president. Um, but I have a sense that also politics at the Senate level and certainly the House le- level, they're going under, um, they're undergoing a pretty big shift too. And, um, and are there going to be any people there willing to take a risk, willing to try to inspire people? Um, is it, you know, has it really shifted? I think the it, it's hard to say. I mean, we've gone. It's again not just a reflection of Donald Trump uh, or response to Donald Trump on the right. You know, we had the Tea Party movement before Donald Trump even kind of entered politics. Um, we had members elected, especially to the House, who were Republicans, but were elected elected on this tidal wave of frustration over uh, President Obama's health care reforms, in particular. And most of them, honestly, didn't have a clearly defined worldview. Um, Some of them were quite skeptical of overseas engagements and uh, raised questions about 
why U.S. military forces were based in so many different countries, whether we could bring troops home and save money. But a lot of that was driven by fiscal uh, concerns. Um, at the end of the day, and I would argue that many of them, going back to Walter Russell Mead, probably were Jacksonian. You know, they weren't opposed to spending money on the military, but they wanted a powerful military that didn't have to do anything. And if we were hit, we'd be hit. We would hit hard in response or respond very quickly, um, but not get involved in protracted conflicts. So that dynamic has been there for quite some time. Uh, more recently, but even going back to the '90s, if you look at the debates about intervention in the Balkans, I guess the the problem when it comes to inspiring the American people, there are too many members of Congress. No one member of Congress can effectively play that inspiring leadership role. If you look at the polling on foreign policy, and I've talked to a lot of pollsters in the last year about foreign policy views, American foreign policy views are basically shaped by politicians, especially presidential candidates or the president. And most Americans outside of uh, New York and Washington and the coast who, or who engage in businesses related to you know, international trade or foreign policy, most Americans don't have clearly defined foreign policy views. It's not – it doesn't matter to their day-to-day lives. They have views about social issues, about health care, about education, uh, about religious issues, because these are all things that factor in to their uh, well-being and that of their family. But on Russia policy, they don't care. Or on China policy, you know, they may be skeptical of China because they've heard about scandals about Chinese products or about Chinese companies having an impact on a local factory being closed. I mean, so that's why that the presidential figure plays such an important role. And you actually saw this during the Republican campaign as well, where Donald Trump single-handedly shifted the Republican Party from being a party of Russia hawks to a party that has, I haven't looked at the latest polling, but is now, I think, majority, you know, favorable towards Vladimir Putin. And that was because Donald Trump thought Vladimir Putin was a good person who could do great things with the U.S. and... They thought, well, if Donald Trump thinks he's good, then he must be good. Uh, and so that dynamic is very strong in foreign policy compared to other issues. And that's why it's hard for you know, your individual member of Congress, who for the most part, most Americans don't even know who the member of Congress is unless they're very politically engaged. Um, so it's hard for Congress to play that role. The one thing I will say that Congress can do and I think has done effectively is they can put up guardrails. And so we saw that with the Russia sanctions, which passed overwhelmingly. We've, yeah. seen, we've seen that with the budget and the Trump administration uh, attempts to cut State Department funding. Uh, Congress basically resisted uh, almost all of those cuts and fully funded programs that the administration wanted to do away with. And so I think you will continue to see bipartisan uh, interest in Congress and a, a willingness to kind of stand up and put up some guardrails to at least maintain those elements of American power. Uh, but I, I, I'm skeptical about the role that Congress can uh, effectively play in actually overcoming, especially a, a president who is going to be telling Americans, especially Republicans who continue to support him, that we shouldn't do certain things in the world. And what role can Congress play in putting guardrails on, you know, some kind of internal red lines, right? So let's just pick a random example like, oh, I don't know, the FBI. Um is, you know, because I think these things are connected, right? And the ability of um, the U.S. to function externally is related to its ability to, its, you know, whether or not it's functioning 
domestically, um, as, as I said before. So um, I think you're, I mean, I, I, uh, I see your point, and I think you're probably right in terms of really core foreign policy issues. But what about the things that are one step removed? Um, where can Congress play a role in, in bolstering, you know, rule of law at home, you know, faith in government at home, faith in the political process at home, faith in our institutions at home. Can is is that also a thing where basically it's it's the president um, and you know whoever listens to him and Congress, other than maybe legislation, doesn't really have a role to play. So it's it's hard, I think, to get uh, to assume that Congress can play much of a leadership role in inspiring confidence in anything. I think mainly because. <laughs> If you look at the poll, polling, Americans have not had confidence in Congress for quite some time. Uh, I mean, I've lost track of their of Congress's approval rating, but it's like something like eight percent, I think. Less favorable than a root canal. I yes. Think. So, um, I don't think most Americans look to members of Congress and say, "Well, if so and so, if Representative John Smith says that you know that we need to stand by the FBI, that I'm going to do it too." Um, you know, again, I think it's much more limited. It's their institutional tools and the fundamental reality that if President Trump wants to get any, most things done, he has to reach across the aisle and do things in a bipartisan way. He cannot build the wall unless it's funded. He cannot, you know, develop his immigration policy unless he gets bipartisan buy-in. And that's the, the kind of back and forth we're going through on a number of these issues. The FBI uh, example, I think, is a little bit more difficult. There you've seen both if you look at the Senate Intelligence Committee, the kind of best of Congress and what can be done, if you look at the way the Senate Intelligence Committee has gone about in a bipartisan way and tackled this question of Russian interference and actually worked with the private sector, with the tech companies to force them to reveal information, which was they previously were denying and has you know not devolved into partisan bickering, bickering the way that the House has, I think that's a great example. Then you compare it to the House Intelligence Committee, which I think is now engaged in a partisan fight to try to, you know, defend the president uh, against an investigation. But at the end of the day, you know, that's not going to, you know, the release the memo, if the memo is released, it's not going to be the end of the Mueller investigation. The Mueller investigation's result will depend on what Bob Mueller finds uh, and whether it's legitimate and he'll have to make that case. Uh, in public and to Congress, and at that point, it'll be adjudicated. The other thing I think people need to remember is we focus a little bit too much just on Congress. The courts and the, uh, the judicial system here have played an important role. If you look at the whole debate about uh, the uh, refugee policy, about immigration bans from certain countries, I mean, these things have all been debated extensively uh, in front of the courts. I think the courts actually forced the administration to change its policies and make them more narrow to make sure they were constitutional. And so, you know, our founders set up these institutions, not assuming that only one could prevent bad things from happening, but it's this system where they all play a different role. Uh, and I, I think, you know, again, on most issues, that has actually worked out relatively well. And the excesses that, you know, we've seen attempts, I think, to push the envelope in a way we haven't seen probably since uh, the 70s. Um, but uh, I think for the most part, the, the system has shown the brilliance, uh, its original brilliance uh, thus far. Can I actually uh, uh, bring it back to a, a, another question maybe? And 
since I think we, we have to mention this, and since there's no one here from the Obama administration, I also uh, feel like they w- they might say something like this. So you mentioned earlier that there's, um, Jamie, that there's um, not high interest maybe in foreign policy, but also this, this lack of uh, engagement. Um, what role do you think the wars in Iraq and especially Afghanistan, which is still ongoing, um, play in this? Is there also this feeling, and maybe rightfully so, that the, the U.S. has been engaged in these um, efforts for a long time? There's no way out. They, didn't, they never seem to end. Aren't people right to uh, feel that this is not worth it? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's uh, a, a, a an, you know, perfectly you know, justified argument that many Americans make. Uh, you know, if you think about the implications of that for Americans' views about the world, we now have, I mean, if you're in high school right now, you've only lived during a period where we have been involved in wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and seem to have never succeeded at any major military conflict, maybe until, if you count, the defeat of ISIS, which, you know, I have all kinds of criticisms about how we actually went about it and how long it took. But up until that point, young Americans uh, had only looked at thousands of deaths and this sense that we can't, these never-ending wars that we cannot win. And I actually think that, that's actually one of my greatest fears about the people who are now in their late teens going into college. What are they going to think when they're 40 years old about what sort of American foreign policy they should be supporting? My guess is that's going to have a, a long-term impact on the American psyche. Um, so, I, you know, I think that's a very valid concern. And actually, that's something that Trump tapped into in a surprising way for a Republican candidate because he made that very argument. He said all of these people, not just President Obama, but President Bush and all of the national security professionals around him, all of you people at think tanks who have supposedly been trying to work to keep America safe have utterly failed. And he's applied that same argument to North Korea. He's applied it to Iran. Um, I've heard that argument from extended family who live outside of Washington and know the work that I do and have worked on for years. Um, they look at a problem like Iran, and we have been debating Iran with our European allies for 20 years, and we have not made any significant progress if you look at the end of the day of what Iran actually is doing in the Middle East. You look at North Korea. We've been debating North Korea policy as a country for more than 20 years, and it has been an utter failure because North Korea is now probably only months away from being able to hit U.S. territory with a nuclear-tipped missile. And any American looks at that and says, this is insane. Why do we pay you guys at the Defense Department at the National Security Council? And Trump, again, people get upset about his rhetoric and about the fact that he actually says, I'm going to take these problems on. But that's responding to a very real, and it's not a fringe view in the American psyche, It's a very real American concern about they want presidents, they want members of Congress, they want leaders who can actually fix problems, not just kick them down the, the road while promising them that everything's going to be fine and we'll be protected in the long run. It'll all work out because as we've now seen from multiple national security uh, kind of entanglements we've gotten ourselves into, it doesn't work out often. Okay, I think maybe that's a good time to close it and bring it to our brilliant and by now famous segment of uh, Think or Tank, so in which we present something that made us think or that we think tanked. Rachel, do you want to go first? Uh, sure, I can go first. I came with a think. This is something that um, not only made me think, but honestly uh, improved my mood immensely when I read it because it's just so 
lovely. It's an article in the what's dated February 8th issue of the New York Review of Books by the Russian emigre Masha Gessen. Um, the title is To Be or Not To Be. And it's just this really, really well-written sort of lyrical meandering tied together around the question of choice and life's choices. And it's a, it's a pleasure to read and it goes in lots of unexpected places. So it starts with, you know, uh, emigration, the, the choice to emigrate and what, and whether or not you have that choice. Cause she was brought to, uh, the U S from Russia when she was, I think, 13. And then, um, gender and, um, sexuality identity choices, um, and then brings it around to immigration at the end. It's quite amazing, really. Uh, and it's so good. I'm going to read just two lines because, uh, it's a real pleasure. So for example, uh, she writes, so in the middle of this, she also, uh, makes a nod at Trump and, the country of her birth. So uh, she writes, choice is a great burden. The call to invent one's life and to do it continuously can sound unendurable. Totalitarian regimes aim to stamp out the possibility of choice. But what aspiring autocrats do is promise to release one from the need to choose. Hmm. Uh, and then she kind of goes on from there and uh, brings it, like I said, to immigration at the end and talks about why we sort of force this idea of Immigrants who don't have a choice to come are somehow more privileged than those who maybe have a choice to come and the distinction between refugees and economic migrants. Anyway, I highly recommend it to be or not to be. Um, it's a very thoughtfully constructed piece. Great. Thank you. Um, so I um, would like to recommend yet another piece in the ongoing German debate on uh, the future of the transatlantic world. So we've, of course, talked about the transatlantic manifesto that some GMF folks were uh, involved in. And then there had been a response in Germany about this, kind of arguing against it and saying Germany should uh, take a more independent road or Germany and Europe. And then now we have a, a third uh, point uh, by our fellow Hans Kunani and Jana Puglerin from the uh, German Council on Foreign Relations. They're basically saying that that's, those are good arguments. You're both wrong. So it's called Atlanticist and Post-Atlanticist Wishful Thinking and it's a really uh, interesting read. And uh, I think this debate, uh, as we discussed a bit earlier in the episode, is ongoing and um, is not resolved yet in Germany. Yeah, not only not only do they say you're both wrong, they say, and it's a lot worse than you think, both of you, which is also great. Okay, Jamie. So mine is... Uh is a little bit more is more political uh and so i actually the that's thing, why we brought you on the thing looking back on the last week um so my th i guess it would be a think uh or a think piece uh was actually president trump's state of the union address um not because i agreed about everything that was in it um but i think i saw a headline afterwards that it was something along the lines of the presidency that might have been and that was what was striking to me about it. I actually think it was the best speech he's delivered thus far. It could have been delivered by pretty much any previous president of any political party, if you set aside some of the policy specifics on immigration. But in terms of the, the way it was framed, the sort of themes, there were actually very inspiring elements. We've talked a lot about this presidential role of, of being inspirer-in-chief, and actually there was a lot of that in there. There uh, was kind of celebration of individual Americans who have, had expressed, who had shown courage and heroism over the last year, uh, inspiring foreign, uh, you know, attendees like the North Korean defector. And so I was just struck by, and you see these little 
you know, kind of insights from time to time about a Trump presidency that could have been if things had been done, I think, very differently from the, on, uh, from the outset. Uh, because uh, I think because of the unique nature of Donald Trump and the fact that, quite frankly, he's not actually that ideological, uh, he is a president who, if he had started off on a different foot, might have actually been able to achieve much more domestically and actually maybe gotten us out of some of uh, the partisan bickering and infighting that we currently are, are, are um, dragged down into. He also uh, clapped uh, for himself a lot, it seemed. That was an interesting new feature for State of the Union. Anyway, thank you very much, Jamie and uh, Rachel, for joining us. And uh, we'll be back soon with another episode of Out of Order. Out of Order is a German Marshall Fund podcast produced by Kelsey Glover. Sound design engineered by Zachary Tarrant.